Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 8, May 10th to May 16th, 1861. Last week, we mentioned a little bit about Arkansas, Tennessee, and the Confederate government. We compared at least a little bit the two presidents, and their cabinets, as well as talked at least a little bit about their leadership styles, so we should keep that in mind as we move forward. It was good to see from that end how those management styles would affect us, so uh, like I said, should keep that in mind. Without further ado, though, let's go ahead and jump into this week. In the East, on May 13th, we have a wrap-up on our Maryland adventure. Federal troops, under the command of Benjamin Butler, will occupy Baltimore, specifically Federal Hill, above downtown, which will end any kind of pro-Confederate movement in the city. After the Baltimore riots we spoke of that saw casualties among both rioters and the 6th Massachusetts as it moved through the city, Mayor George Brown would continue to contact President Lincoln and state that he did not wish for any federal troops to pass through Baltimore. And he would even go as far as to burn railroad bridges north of the city. So any volunteers that are desperately needed in Washington would not be able to get there. Baltimore was also an important city because of the rail lines that met there as we talked about in the previous episode. Butler's troops would put an end to any kind of stopping of trooper supply movements through the city, though. They would round up any kind of pro-Confederates, and Fort McHenry, which is uh, the site of the events that inspired the Star-Spangled Banner, uh, that will be used to house some of these pro-Confederate members of the city Uh, As we mentioned, they would be imprisoned, uh, and they would uh, spend some time there, I guess we could say. But we'll talk a little bit about prisoners here at the the end of the episode here. That's, uh, That's one of our extra topics. Benjamin Butler, I think, is also worth mentioning here. Prior to the war, he was a lawyer from Massachusetts. He would recognize the importance of the working class troops, Uh, and defend them, in in the legal sense, back home in the Bay State. In fact, he uses his men with rail experience to repair tracks that were damaged by Mayor Brown in Baltimore. Butler was a Democrat, and he actually supported Jefferson Davis and John C. Breckinridge for president. After joining the war effort on the side of the Union, he would become the first volunteer that is to say, not military professional, to be promoted to major general. And this was done by Abraham Lincoln himself. But why? Butler, along with many others on both sides, mind you, not just the North, was a political appointment. Lincoln understood that he would need to appease the Democrats of the North, and thus named politicians into higher-ranking positions. These would also expand to immigrants, especially in the North, uh, which would be an effort to placate the many Irish and Germans 
among others who would fight uh, on the side of the Union. Throughout the war, these political appointments would perform to various degrees of effectiveness, uh, as you would imagine, for some of them were not professionals, uh, but we will take a look at that as we move forward. And it should also be noted that in the case of Benjamin Butler, uh, we will certainly hear his name again, and uh, perhaps sooner rather than later. Let's move now to the West and backtrack just a little bit. On May 10th, we have what is known as the Camp Jackson Affair, or Camp Jackson Incident, which is an unfortunate event that starts bloodshed in the Trans-Mississippi Theater. Uh, that is to say, the part of the war that is west of the Mississippi. This action will take us to Missouri. Now, Missouri, we have mentioned in the Missouri Compromise, and we mentioned in the context of bleeding Kansas, but it should also be important to point out yet again that it is, in fact, a border state. Despite the border ruffian bushwhackers, there are still a majority of the population who did not want to leave the Union. St. Louis, in particular, had a large German population that would want to remain loyal to their new federal government. Many had participated in the European revolutions of 1848, so they would be more liberal in sentiment. Fun fact, actually, uh, Adolphus Bush, as in the Bush of Anheuser-Busch, will serve in the American Civil War for the Union. So we should remember that next time we're slamming down a few Bud Lights. Recently elected governor of Missouri, Claiborne Fox Jackson, had followed the lead of much of the other border states. Missouri outwardly would be neutral and not answer the call uh, for either leaving the Union or uh, also the call for volunteers. But that would be outwardly. Inwardly, Jackson wanted the state to join the Confederates. The Missouri governor had participated uh, as a border ruffian uh, into raids into Kansas and now plotted to seize the arms at the U.S. arsenal in St. Louis. This would be a prize bigger than that, that of what we already mentioned in Harper's Ferry. Remember, most of the forces prior to the war are stationed in the West, and St. Louis was the gateway to the West. Senator Francis Blair caught wind of the plot and relieved the commander who would turn the arsenal over to the state militia. A young captain by the name of Nathaniel Lyon would take over, sending the arms to nearby Illinois. Missouri militia units would form at Camp Jackson under General Daniel Frost. Just as a proper introduction to Nathaniel Lyon, we have actually sort of met him before uh, in our story, although he was not specifically mentioned. It was he who had supposedly been working with James Montgomery, uh, the Free Soiler, uh, when Montgomery was evading capture by federal forces uh, in the Bleeding Kansas uh, incidents. And if not working with, I would say that 
at the very least, Nathaniel Lyon was not uh, really attempting to uh, catch Montgomery, so not trying as hard as he probably uh, should have. Lyon was born in 1818 in Connecticut and attended West Point before serving in the Seminole and Mexican-American War. He would continue to serve in California, being involved in questionable actions against Native American tribes there, which included a massacre of women and children. Total destruction of the enemy would be something that Nathaniel Lyon would uh, certainly see as a goal in war, and uh, we'll see that moving forward as well. There are different opinions I've seen surrounded Lyon. Some that he was mentally unstable and that he was sadistic, having a certain uh, penchant for harsh and painful punishments. After California, he was then assigned to Kansas, where he was stationed before taking command at the arsenal there in St. Louis. Lyon would be assisted by the already mentioned Francis Preston Blair, brother of Montgomery Blair, which is Lincoln's first postmaster general. Blair was a Republican who helped to organize the Wide Awakes in St. Louis. Although against slavery, he was a supporter of relocating blacks to a new colony elsewhere. That did not stop him from efforts to arm the Wide Awakes with Sharps rifles. He would go on to serve as a general in the Vicksburg campaign, and he plays a crucial part in helping to organize the volunteers that would come under the command of Lyon. It should also be noted, though, that technically the creation of these regiments is in fact illegal given the circumstances. Regardless, Lincoln approved of the aggressive nature of Lyon and would sort of turn a blind eye. Their opposition on the Confederate side was one General Daniel Frost, another interesting figure. Frost had been born in New York and intended West Point, and during the war with Mexico, he would be uh, breveted for gallantry at the Battle of Cerro Gordo. After the Camp Jackson incident, he would also bounce around a little bit uh, on the staffs of other Confederate generals before fleeing to Canada before the war's end, and in doing so, he uh, did not officially resign uh, his, his uh, commission, uh, so sort of quit without notice there and just went to Canada. Lyon would lead 7,000 volunteers, mostly made up of Germans from St. Louis, and two companies of U.S. regulars to capture Camp Jackson. Facing such a large force, Frost would be forced to surrender, having only approximately 700 or so men under his command. In a more famous incident uh, in regards to, to the Camp Jackson affair, uh, supposedly Lyon uh, disguised himself as a woman and went into the camp to uh, sort of gain intelligence on the number of Confederates. So that is another story that does surround this event. The Confederates that were captured were then marched back toward the arsenal. Crowds formed to watch the procession, seen as a humiliation tactic on behalf of Lyon. I've seen several places 
that Lyon was reportedly incapacitated due to being kicked in the stomach by an excited horse, but not all the sources I have seen report this to be true. In an interesting parallel to Baltimore, if you remember, uh, we talked about the riots recently, the civilian onlookers became agitated, throwing first insults, but then uh, projectiles, rocks. And it's unclear exactly what happened, but the crowds began to uh, you know, throw these, these objects, which was obviously not cool for, for the uh, Union forces, which caused some return fire uh, in a uh, brief period of uh, very bloody and a, a chaos. In some accounts, it is a drunkard that fires a pistol at a Union officer that started the conflict. Most of the volunteers, we should uh, point out, were green and excitable, so they were itching to go ahead and, uh, and discharge some weapons. In addition, there was a very negative view of the immigrant Germans amongst other citizens of Missouri, so it's entirely likely that they were the target of the ire for the crowd. Some may also not have been agreeable to the power being exerted by the federal government, obviously a common theme that we have seen so far. By the end of the action, 27 civilians, two Federals, three Confederates, and many other wounded amongst all three of those were uh, the casualties. Frost and his men were detained before being paroled shortly thereafter. I know we are relatively early on our journey through the Civil War, and that there are a lot of topics to cover as we continue deeper down the road. I think that this is a good time to talk about prisoners of war. Now you may be thinking to yourself, we really haven't had any large-scale battles yet. And you would be right, we certainly have not. But I think it is important to know exactly what happens should you be captured by the enemy. Besides that, there have already been several instances where bloodshed was avoided by surrenders or captures, uh, so we have been introduced to that concept at least. There might be many reasons to surrender or be captured during the war. Position may be untenable. You could be trapped in a fort or in a, a position where escape is futile. You could be wounded and left on the battlefield. You could even not want to fight anymore, especially if you have been conscripted to fight, something that we will cover uh, in, later down the road in a later episode. Going back to, say, ancient and medieval times, high-profile prisoners could be ransomed or exchanged. Unfortunately, not so much for the common soldier back in the day, who had uh, little value, uh, it's just another mouth to feed. Uh, so often in those medieval and ancient battles, uh, they were uh, unfortunately expendable. But fortunately, by the 1800s, there would be a more genteel approach to warfare for the most part. When a losing side surrenders, the victor is bound by honor to accept uh, the surrender, when, unlike, you know, as we talked about in those ancient times. Originally, Abraham Lincoln wished to consider captured Confederate raiders, that is to say, Confederate privateers, as traitors or pirates. But the president was quickly pressured to allow uh, for the rules of war to apply. This was an interesting argument that saw Confederates vie for legitimacy as a nation, 
and they would point for this as a, an example, you know, proof that they are in fact a separate nation. Uh, but we'll get more into those details uh, here in a future episode. Early in the Civil War, there's a very different attitude to prisoners. Neither side really had the facilities for a long-term confinement of large amounts of men. We mentioned already in a previous episode, the attitude of both North and South was that the war would be over quickly. Neither was ready for a long, drag-out fight. With resources needed for the war effort, it was quickly apparent that an alternative arrangement would be needed for prisoners of war. General John A. Dix of the North and D.H. Hill of the South would arrive at a solution known as the Dix-Hill Cartel. This system involved the parole of captured soldiers. We have already mentioned this term, parole, and while yes, it does have modern connotations, in this sense, it is referring to an agreement between a prisoner and a captor where the prisoner is released with the agreement that they will not bear arms against the capturing side. If you have seen Last of the Mohicans, which I, I definitely recommend it, it's a very uh, classic book, classic movie. Uh, they depict the surrender of Fort William Henry. Uh, this is an example of a parole. They're allowed to, uh, it doesn't really work out for them. Just, sorry, spoiler alert there, but um, you know they're allowed to leave and just, just go home and don't fight anymore. In the American Civil War, soldiers were paroled so that the victors did not have to provide care for the captured men. Only when informed of exchange could they fight against the enemy again. Now in our modern mind, we are probably like, why not just lie? Well, it was a different time and a different mindset. Soldiers were very serious about their paroles. Exchanges, as you can imagine, would be trading like for like, as in one lieutenant for one lieutenant, or ten privates for ten privates. Now, it should also be pointed out that there were certainly those who did violate parole, and in fact, later in the war, Ulysses S. Grant is a bit peeved that some of the soldiers he is fighting against in the Vicksburg campaign uh, were paroled uh, from previous actions against him, uh, so they weren't really supposed to be fighting again, so he is a little bit upset about that. And speaking of that exchange system, it will last until 1863, when the Confederate States announced they would not continue the system for black troops. This was an impasse that ended paroles and exchanges altogether. Thus, we see many of the prisons we have mentioned below become crowded or even are created later in the war. The Confederates would feel the brunt of this. Their lack of manpower when compared to the North made every prisoner or casualty that much more important. It also made any prisoner that you're taking on that much more important because you are having to uh, scramble in terms of resources for the folks that are actually fighting for you. There were different types of prisons on both sides. Fortifications is another topic which I wish to cover more in depth later, but by 1861, there were outdated forts that were still made of substances like brick that were no longer effective in stopping the modern artillery of the day. These forts could be repurposed to confine prisoners. Fort Pulaski in Savannah 
or Castle Pickney in Charleston are great examples. A star fortification known as Fort Wood was used for Confederate prisoners in New York. Fort Wood would become the base of the Statue of Liberty, so you actually see that structure, or at least the um, outline of that structure, when you look at pictures of the Statue of Liberty. Warehouses could also be converted to prisons, such as Libby Prison in Richmond. You could use islands like Belle Isle and Richmond as well. If there were no structures, tents surrounded by a stockade could be used to house prisoners, such as in Andersonville. We see a wide variety of types of prisons, but can sort of shorten that and say as long as the location was defendable and would allow for easy transportation of men and supplies, then it was a good location for a prisoner of war camp. Life in these camps during the Civil War was tough for both Union and Confederate soldiers. No matter where you look, there are terrible accounts of places such as Andersonville for Union troops or the barracks at Elmira, New York, for Confederates. The question, of course, is why? Well, as we already mentioned, just because we are now having to support more prisoners does not mean all of a sudden we will be shifting more resources to them now. The war effort would certainly come first. Next, we see overcrowding. Many of these places we have mentioned were well above their capacity. Overcrowding and a lack of nutrition would lead to disease. Lack of vitamin C would lead to bouts of scurvy. The filth would lead to pests like lice and fleas among the men. Typhoid, dysentery, and smallpox were common. It should be noted that this is also the case in long-term encampments. So not just in the situation of prisoners. Disease kills more men than the battlefield will during the war. Bad sanitation in many of these locations also leads to the large numbers of dead. The U.S. Sanitary Commission, when inspecting Camp Douglas in Illinois, would claim that nothing but fire could cleanse the place. Water sources in other camps were often tainted with waste, in some cases the captors purposefully contaminating them. In the case of the tent structure setups, the overcrowding would also leave soldiers exposed to the elements. Many would die, especially in the colder climates in the north and upper south. In Elmira, known to the Confederates as Helmira, the rebels would be given little to no forms of shelter. 25% of the men sent there would perish. Belle Isle would see a similar situation. Now, I live in Richmond, and from time to time, I walk my dog on Belle Isle. There's a little loop on the island that does not take very long, maybe 10 to 15 minutes. At one point on the island, there were 30,000 Union prisoners, which is crazy to think that if you walk around the entire thing in 10 to 15 minutes, there were actually 30,000 folks. Something doesn't add up there. There should be special consideration for Andersonville, probably the most famous prisoner of war camp. Andersonville was eight times over capacity, 
and we have a quote from a Union soldier upon entering. As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror. Before us were forms that once had been active and erect stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? Union soldiers would attempt to tunnel out of the camp. Some would play dead in order to be removed and make their escape. It is interesting, though, despite the horrible conditions, Confederates guarding the camp would offer freedom and ability to walk free if they took an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy. Reportedly, none of the Yankees would take this offer. Our modern sensibilities are perplexed by this, maybe. By the end of the war, 13,000 men would die at Andersonville. Many more would die after relocating to other camps, such as Florence, Stockade, and South Carolina. Captain Henry Wirtz, the commander at Andersonville, would be tried in 1865 for his involvement and found guilty. On the scaffold in Washington, D.C., he reportedly told the officer of his detail, I know what my orders are, Major. I am being hanged for obeying them. Most of what we are talking about with these harsh conditions will occur later in the war, as we mentioned. It will surprise you to know that the infamous Andersonville was only open for 14 months. By the end of the war, 400,000 men would be imprisoned on both sides, scattered across 150 different prison locations. We should also point out that the experience varied. On some occasions, men were treated better, especially officers. Wealthy Southerners could pay for hotel rooms in Chicago rather than stay at the disease-infested Camp Douglas, known as the Andersonville of the North. Guards could vary in their attitudes toward the prisoners. Not all were sadistic. Civilians often attempted to aid the men in these terrible conditions. We talked about, uh, in our spy episode, uh, Elizabeth Van Loo's involvement in nursing Union prisoners at Libby. I know it's sort of a bummer, but this is actually a pretty good place to leave it. Like I mentioned, we have a little bit of time before these prisoner of war camps become crowded, but I felt that given the Camp Jackson affair, already having been talked a good deal about prisoners, this was a good time to bring this up. We have some events next week to go over, and I will be adding in a discussion of one of my favorite unit types of the war, swabs. So, I'm certainly excited. You should be too for next week. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Once again, feedback is appreciated. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, concerns, uh, etc. I do have a link to the website, uh, to the Patreon, and Venmo information uh, in the episode description as well. So your support for the show is greatly appreciated. Uh, Thank you, and have a great week.